So I was recently in Amsterdam and I... I love how you were about to just slip that into our conversation. Okay, you caught me. I'm not that cool, I promise. It was my first time there. A beautiful city, gotta go back, yada yada, all the good stuff. But I was there with my brother Ian, who you've heard from on this podcast, and Ian has filmmaker friends in Amsterdam, this Dutch couple. Our last night there, the four of us went out to dinner, and inevitably, guess what topic comes up, Darylise? Gosh, here we go. Yep. Race came up, of course, and more specifically, what race my brother and I are. But it wasn't one of those invasive, hostile conversations that we talked at length about in episode two, about the what are you question. For one thing, the Dutch couple themselves were interracial, and they were showing a genuine, respectful curiosity. But why I brought up the story was that at the end of the night, the white woman in the relationship said, affirmingly, mixed babies are always the most beautiful. Oh my gosh, I've heard that so many times in my life, and I never know how to react to it. But your story brings me back to the first episode of this season, in which we talked about the fact that mixed-race babies are often the subjects of sweeping narratives. And those narratives might span the gamut, from stories about a post-racial world to, in the case of your brother's friends, speaking about desirability or attractiveness. And most of the time, you don't get babies without relationships. Which is the theme of this episode. In our last episode, we spoke about families we're born into or brought into. This episode, we'll be talking about what many communities refer to as families of choice, as well as dating, relationships, friendships, and not so much babies as parenting. And Darylise and I recognize that the lines between friends and family can often be arbitrary, just like the lines of racial categorization. Anyway, I'm Malcolm Burnley, a mixed journalist. And I'm Darylise Lyons, a biracial journalist. One of my favorite sayings is the old adage, the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships. And it's true. Not only are our lives positively and negatively influenced by our relationships, but who we become and how we live is in large part a result of the people in our lives. What surrounds us clearly shapes us. Or should I say, who's around us clearly shapes us. Especially early on in life, when we're impressionable and without the agency to choose our relationships. How we're raised influences how we see ourselves and how we interact with the world. And also how the world interacts with us. But then as we grow and evolve and become more self-expressed, hopefully we can start to build our own networks that allow us to be ourselves and to honor our values and be in uplifting communities. I don't want to sound too idealistic, but our friendships and romantic relationships and the families we build can be really safe, supportive places for those of us who might have, at times, struggled to fit in. We'll delve into family and parenting dynamics more towards the end of the episode, but let's start by talking about non-familial relationships, because friendships are an interesting arena. I do find with building relationships, when I first meet someone, I try not to make assumptions about them or anything. I just try to get to know them. And then I fill in the details. I don't want to work out everything about them. What's their race? What's their sexuality? I just want to meet the person for who they are, what they identify as. And I think that's what people need to do and not go in there being like, I have this standard, this criteria. I need you to meet it. Otherwise, we can't be friends. We can't interact. And I feel like so many people have that standard and criteria. It is so hard to break, but you really just have to push yourself and keep an open mind because if you have that criteria, that standard, you're probably going to miss out on some of the best people you'll ever meet. That was Sienna McWhirter, a biracial 17-year-old living near Sydney, Australia. Sienna has three biracial older sisters, a black mom and a white dad, and is attending a predominantly white school. And she told me that her white friends have been wonderful allies during uncomfortable racial moments. As she put it, they've stood not in front of her, but beside her as allies and accomplices. 
But that's not everyone's experience. We all seek comfort in our closest relationships, but there are many multiracial people who find that they can't always count on friends to be allies. Because race can be an uncomfortable reality, social science supports the idea that many white Americans often end up choosing friends, whether consciously or subconsciously, who don't talk critically about race. This means that a lot of white people form connections with other white people and or many people of color learn that in order to maintain connections with white friends, they can't discuss race or racial moments, even if the topic of race is an important part of their lived experience. Reuters conducted a survey that found that 40% of white Americans, along with a quarter of non-white Americans, said they didn't have a close relationship with someone outside of their race. That was in 2013. It's worth noting that a different survey done a decade earlier by Gallup had vastly different numbers than the Reuters survey, reporting that more than twice as many white Americans said they did have a close relationship outside of their race. Whatever the actual statistics, there are a lot of structural factors that get in the way of cross-racial friendships. For instance, segregation and discrimination. But there are also social and psychological aspects as well. For many BIPOC individuals, having people around who acknowledge race and are willing to openly discuss racism is a prerequisite for feeling comfortable. It's the inverse of why some white people end up having only white friends. Multiracial Americans are more likely than monoracial individuals to have racially diverse friend groups, along with being more likely to have friends who identify as multiracial, according to the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan think tank. My own experiences support that. All my life, I've had friends of a variety of races and ethnicities. I grew up surrounded by white, black, and biracial people, including my closest childhood friends who, like me, had a white mom and a black dad. And it's still that way. As I've gotten older, I can say that I've continued developing friendships with other people of all races and that I value that diversity. But my relationships with other biracial and multiracial people have felt especially sacred. It's like I don't know how much I'm craving having my multiracial identity and experiences mirrored back to me until I connect with others and feel like I don't have to translate or explain. And I'll say, too, that for me, the racial composition doesn't feel relevant. Just being around other people who have more non-binary experiences of and exposures to race, it's like my soul sighs with relief. I feel exactly the same way. Without being too corny, that's one of the reasons I love working with you and have loved working on this project. Having these conversations, I felt instant connections with people, and it made me more appreciative of my multiracial friends. Also, Darylise, that's something that came up in my conversation with Ashanti Martin, the general manager of talk radio station Word in Philly. I end up bonding a lot with my friends who are mixed race. I'll say for the record, I very much identify as Black and as Puerto Rican and as multiracial. But one of my best friends, two, two of my best friends, actually. So one is Irish, Italian and Puerto Rican. And the other is Cuban and Algerian. And so their experiences are, are pretty different from mine, but we're just best friends because we have that experience of, it's almost like no one really gets you. And I think as an adult, it's different because I think you are interacting with more people who just understand that there's different people, but especially when you're a kid, everyone is just trying to understand each themselves and you so it's always like, what are you? How do you even work? What color are you? What do you do at home? What do you eat? What do you like? Kids are always just trying to find that out. So I think that as a result, regardless of the mixture, I always just have that same shared experience. And that's why a lot of my best friends are, are mixed race, biracial, 
multicultural, really across the spectrum. That's not to say that all or even most multiracial people have that same experience of identity flexibility or want friendships with others who are also mixed, or even if they do, that they have access to other multiracial people with whom to become friends. Likewise, it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that there's diversity within every identity category. Just because two people are multiracial doesn't mean that they have the same interests, values, politics, tastes, I could go on. Some multiracial people, especially those who are white passing or white presenting, might not have access to multicultural or BIPOC spaces, either because others don't see them as biracial or because that's not how they see themselves. But for other folks that we spoke with, forming bonds with people who looked and identified as they did was important, especially at an early age. Here's David Ryan Barsega Castro Harris. I was fortunate to grow up with play cousins who were biracial, multiracial. I'm the oldest of them. And so when I've had conversations about this with my brother, it's always been like, oh yeah, you, Dominic, Dylan, Savannah, we're all, we're all the same, right? We're all black and Filipino. That's not strange. That's not weird. That's not different. But there's the book I'm trying to, I think it's Beverly Tatum. I know why all the black kids sit together at the lunch tables, something to that effect. The book is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race by Beverly Daniel Tatum. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's this book around why do racial groups tend to clump together in school, right? I aligned with Asian folks and Filipino folks specifically because there weren't that many Black kids at my school. There were senses of belonging there, but there was also always an acknowledgement that like, oh, David's not just... Filipino, David's not just Asian. And like, for the most part, it was just like, yep, that's a cool fact about me. Wasn't an othering thing. And there have been moments where it was. There have been moments within Black communities where, again, like for the most part, everywhere I go, there's general acceptance of the whole ass person who shows up in space. But then there are also moments of, oh, but you're not really Black or you're not really Asian. Or why do you talk like XYZ, right? Again, like not all of that is attributed to being a mixed person, but those are contributing factors. What David said connects with the point Sienna made earlier about how when developing our friendships and relationships, we want to honor ourselves and others as whole ass people. Right. And at the same time, sometimes having a shared identity or intersecting identities in common can act as a shortcut and prevent people from having to do so much explaining. Or on the other hand, it can create an assumption of connection that ultimately isn't there. These things are complicated. They are. To go back to Beverly Daniel Tatum's book for a moment, in episode number four, we talked about being a multiracial child in school and many of the challenges that the now adults we spoke with faced as they were growing up, as well as some of the privileges. And last year, we did a three-episode season funded by the National Association of Black Journalists, NABJ, featuring youth voices ages 4 through 21, in which we talked about many things having to do with the experience of biracial youths, including their experiences at school. We'll put links to those episodes in the show notes and hope you'll check them out. There's so much we could share about the value of friendships, including numerous studies citing a positive correlation between friendship and happiness, mental health, and even physical health and longevity. But I guess the overall point is that having people around us who care about us are invested in our struggles and successes, and who we care about in return has innumerable lifelong benefits, including potentially extending the length of our lives. But just because we might consider a person a friend doesn't mean that they feel the same way about us. Mutual and authentic relationships are what really matter. 
There's a quote I came across from Chicago-based pastor David Swanson. Quote, white people tend to think that the answer to racial injustice is to foster cross-racial friendships, while people of color are often, in my experience, looking for friends who will join the struggle for genuine equity. End quote. That's not to say that it's only white people with whom us mixed folks don't always feel met. I know I and many of those we spoke with have struggled to feel like we can bring our full selves forward with people of a variety of races. But it's important to feel like those around us have our backs and get where we're coming from, even if they've never experienced it. I've always felt that way about romantic partners. It's never mattered to me whether someone shares my racial background, but just that they understand my multicultural upbringing and interests and identity. I've always been pretty private about my own relationships, and fair or not, I would love to keep it that way. Not to put all the pressure on you, Darylise, but what's been your experience with dating and relationships in relation to being biracial? Okay, fine. I'll be public about my dating life, for a little anyway. I've dated people of all races, but something that I've noticed specifically about the few biracial or multiracial people that I've dated is how we developed a sort of shorthand for speaking about race and family dynamics and early life experiences that I don't ever necessarily look for when dating, but it's been really nice to have when it is there. And some, although certainly not all of the monoracial people that I've dated, have made assumptions about my identity and experiences that weren't true and projected things onto me that really didn't fit my lived experiences. Something I found curious about our interviews is how central race has been for some people throughout the dating and relationship process and how it's been a lot less relevant for others. I noticed that too, and it seemed to have to do with a variety of different factors, such as environment, appearance, culture, exposure to other races and identities, phenotype, colorism, and appearance, which we explored at depth in episode seven. Tyler Sloan, a Canadian actor, spoke about how their intersectionality as a queer multiracial person who was adopted by a white woman, who in some ways felt divorced from themselves and their culture, had to grapple with issues of desirability and expectations, both on stage and on dates. My mixed race identity came into play when it became like desirability. When I was finally in puberty and wanting to be liked, I was noticing like white guys were getting fond over and I was noticing also my own attraction yeah. in men. So there was that component. And then it was acting. It was, who would we cast you as? Because you are a brown person and suddenly I'm 19 by this time, 18, 19, I had to reconcile with actually being a person of color and mm -hmm. to actually reconcile with being indigenous. And by this time, the racism, when I was like a preteen to teenager up until 2014, I navigated an experience where I would be like, when people would finally ask what I was, and so a lot of people would, and a lot of Asians would, and actually a lot of Filipinos for that matter would, because Filipinos navigate their own indigeneity mm -hmm. with being Spanish. They saw me, and because there was a huge migration in like 2009, eight in that town, a huge migration of Filipino folks came through. Oh, interesting. That a lot of people would tell me no. People would tell me that I'm Korean, that I was Japanese, that I was Vietnamese, that I was Filipino, that I was Chinese. And actually at this time, I didn't know that I was Chinese. I didn't know that I was Asian of any kind, and that would come a little bit later. But I would get so, and again, that internalized racism. The various intersections that we hold really inform how much of ourselves we can bring into our relationships, and also whether those relationships affirm our identities or problematize them. Here's Samante Cruz, a metalsmith living in British Columbia. I don't know if this is luckily enough or interestingly enough, but in any case, 
before my accident, I had a partner that was disabled. And so I learned a lot about disability, being an ally, like what that kind of looks like, what kind of challenges people deal with in terms of chronic pain and all that kind of stuff. I was like a support person and funnily and not funnily enough, but in any case, he was also hit by a car and had very severe injuries. So it was kind of it was like a familiar story yet, but it was happening to me. But I was really grateful to have connections, not just with my partner at the time, but other people who were in the disability community, because I just already had a foundation and language and framework for like how to be an ally. So then being on the other side of it, yeah, it was an easier transition, I think, because I had already done a lot of work around how to be an ally for people that when I became part of that community, it was more clear what my challenge is. Like, I already felt like I had a skill set <laughs> to like yeah. deal with low capacity or chronic pain. Not to say that any of it was easy, but I feel like I'm still unlearning internalized ableism all the time. In my head, I'm still able-bodied and I overcommit and run art festivals <laughs> taking care of myself so yeah i feel like it's just an ongoing journey but it did feel good to know that i wasn't the only one i think maybe a lot of people that aren't connected to community already they become disabled and then they're completely isolated so i mean i still experience isolation because of my disability, but at least I know I'm not the only one experiencing isolation, that kind of thing. As Samante points out, having connections with those who share elements of our identity, whether as romantic partners, friends, community members, etc., enables us to unlearn internalized biases and to feel more connected with others and ourselves. Yeah. And when Samante mentioned knowing they weren't the only one experiencing something, it made me think about how validating it was to hear the stories of other people's dating experiences, even experiences that could be painful. Personally, as we conducted these interviews, I had some light bulb moments in which I thought, oh, wow, these things have happened to other multiracial people too. And noticing those commonalities felt affirming. As much as I said I wanted to keep my dating life private, and I do, I will say I found hearing other people's stories affirming too. I certainly recognize some parallels between some of my own dating experiences and those of Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional who supports museums and cultural institutions in Philadelphia. I can reflect on one story, and not to say that this story speaks towards any others, but I went on a date, it's only one date, with a gentleman that towards the end of the date, he told me, I really like you and I really like light-skinned women. And that was it. I was like, okay. I was like, I got three more stops until I'm, and we were on the bus too. I'm like, that was like, this is it's not the whole. Yeah, yeah. The Uber was available, but we did not. <laughs> that's, that's another conversation. But yeah, he-, you he feel, had, you, Did you feel like exotified in a way that was uncomfortable? Oh, absolutely. And I guess I say that to say, he said it out loud. He had zero tact. <laughs> and I'm going to just say this to you, like it's a compliment. And uh, that was the- Dumbest way to end the night, but that's where we went. So the night was done shortly after that. That was a first date and an only date. But he said it out loud. And I guess that's the yeah. thing where, you know, for every one person that says it out loud, there's got to be at least five that didn't. And then there were people like my sister Tyla, for whom, at least overtly, race hasn't factored into her dating life much, if at all. I feel like the relationships that I look at what I consider like my significant relationships, which isn't not necessarily a time thing, but just the impact they made. 
my first real air quote boyfriend was white. And then my next one was black. My next one was white. My next one was black. Then I dated one biracial guy who in hindsight, I think had a similar racial reckoning as I have with the spaces that he's been in. And now I date, I've been dating a white guy. I don't know if it comes up. I don't know if it necessarily does. It feels like I just like date who I'm attracted to. And I've attracted to a bunch of different people. Yeah. I don't know if it really has. Well, have people been attracted to you or unattracted to you on the basis of race? I think this is like a colorism issue. And I think this is a little bit, yeah, not necessarily in dating, but just in relationships in general. I've definitely gotten the thing of, oh, well, you're like a safe person of color. I remember being told that in high school and being like really confused by what that meant. And then when they explained it, they were like, well, like, no, you're not like really black or something. And then being like, what? And now I understand it from the lens of colorism, right? And what they were saying behind that. But I'm sure that that conversation comes up for people. I'm not always aware of it. I just remember this one time in high school being really aware of it where someone was like, well, no, 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 don't worry. We're not talking about you. You're not really this. Really what? Did you say that to them or what did you say? At that time in high school, I think I was just really confused and really silent because that was kind of the way that I handled stuff. And if I could go back, I'd give that person a strong talking to. But no, my... My high school self was, I think, confused. And then when I understood it, so ashamed or something, or so just didn't want to be involved with these people who are saying this. Did you continue to be involved with those people? Oh, no, they were the worst. (laughs) They were the worst. I did not. No. Speaking of people who were the worst, I was really struck by how much Carter O'Brien Ford, an actor and playwright, has had to contend with discrimination in dating on the basis of his race. My first 14-year-old girlfriend who broke up with me when she found out I wasn't Mexican. And it is very funny, but it, it is because her dad had apparently threatened to send her back to Catholic school if she had ever dated a Black guy. And we had been dating for about a month or so, and she just had no idea that I was half Black at all. She liked me as a person. It was nice dating her for a little while. It wasn't until I got, as a freshman, I got the lead in this musical where the character is one-eighth Haitian and this senior acting student who was upset that he had never had a lead in any of the school-wide musicals. And he was basically told, hey, just wait your turn all the four years that he was there. And then suddenly some kid who's almost as tall as him but is four years younger than him comes in and gets the lead in the musical as a freshman. And he's very understandably upset. And he says that the only reason that Carter got that role is because that character is one-eighth Haitian and Carter's half black. And my girlfriend says, that's not true. And then he says, that is true. And she goes, no, it's not true. He's Mexican. Everyone's very shocked. Everyone laughs. And ultimately she ended up needing to break up with me. And then I ended up dating a black woman on the same production. And I told her that I didn't think I was ready to have sex. And I didn't think that I was ready to really be with her that physically. She told me that this is why she didn't date white guys, because we were all timid. I remember my my freshman year of college, I hooked up with someone who did give me a compliment and said that that was pretty good for a white guy. I was like, I'd rather you not say that. And then when I had explained that I identified as being biracial and biracial, I rude that day very quickly when she just started being like, oh, it's the black side in you. And I'm like, this is not comfortable anymore. Let's just say that we have a connection. Did you keep dating that person? 
We're still friends to this day. We didn't date anymore. We stopped, but we are actually still friends. And she she has learned and she's very happy to learn, to be honest. She's she always tell me she'd be like, Carter, I'm from this bat. I'm from like black, black DC. So I didn't know. And I'm like, cool, we're all good. But she's she's actually great. I love her. During our interview, it was obvious to me that Carter has a really big heart and a tremendous capacity for forgiveness. And the two of us spoke about how that can be both an asset and a liability. I admired Carter's ability to speak so freely and openly about his dating history, even the ugly and uncomfortable parts. Then again, he wrote a one-man show and publicly speaks about his bad dates, dates in which race and racism quite literally take center stage. The ending bit of my show mentions a true story about how I, I went home with a woman and then I woke up the next morning and like she had taken all the covers and I was just there, nude, sitting on a stool on a, in a robe and she asked me, hey, what are you? And I realized I was wearing a beanie the whole night before and she had now just seen my non-hat haired afro and I said, oh, I'm half black, half Irish. And she paces around the room, tells me I should probably get dressed and leave and then mentions to me that she had a great night last night and at the time with the information that she had, at that time, it was completely consensual and that I'm rushing to get out and I don't really know what I should really do. And this is a situation where if this was a few years earlier, I would have actually tried to console this woman and be like, hey, this is my fault. As I grew up, I was like, yep, you need to get out of those situations. There's no convincing these people. There's nothing. But yeah, she she was very nice about it. The thing that she was the most upset about was she thought we had a real connection. And now she'll just never know if it was that or if this was just her first experience with a black guy. And it was just so interesting to me because when she mentioned connection, I thought it meant like the whole night. So does she think that the whole walking around a park, going from place to place, holding hands and just being there. Does she think that that's my blackness too? Or is she just talking, you know, like there's so many questions that I, as a younger person, wouldn't have been able to sleep without knowing any of the answers to that. But in that moment, I was just goodbye. I'm sorry. And I do talk about the show that I do go downstairs and I think about it for a while. I think about it because I think at that point in my life, I was like, right. I had just started therapy. I was right in the middle of, do I want to go up and console her? Do I want to make her feel better? I don't want to be the villain in someone's life. And I was like, yeah, there's just no, there's no solving that. There's no, there's no helping that. There's some situations you need to move on from. And as an adult, I think that that's the greatest skill that I can have is knowing who I could help versus who there's, there's no reason to waste a breath. Cause I used to waste a lot of breaths when I was younger. I also used to be a lot more concerned with making others feel comfortable about my identity and myself when I was younger, rather than claiming space unapologetically. Although there were some instances when I didn't care at all, even while being subjected to what Ashanti Martin referred to as white people's racial disdain. And Ashanti shared that she felt this disdain in a couple of dating situations. I did not ever experience direct racism for a long time. And I would say one is because... I grew up in a predominantly black and brown neighborhood. I went to school with a lot of predominantly black and brown people, but also I definitely attribute it to me being lighter skinned and someone who white people are just more comfortable around. And I think don't express that racial disdain that they do to darker skinned people. So when I did experience racism, it was very much a shock to me. And I have to say, it woke me up that people still are experiencing very intense racism, really nasty racism that was very 
theoretical to me for a long time because I didn't directly experience it. My first memory of like outright racism directed towards me, well, there was two. This one was not outright, although it was pretty outright. It was I was about 19 years old and I was trying to help my boyfriend find an apartment. And so I called a listing and I said, I want to come see the apartment. They told me it was available fine. And I went like the next day. I went to this house and the the lady didn't even come out. She was just like looking through her window and I knocked on the door. She's like, it's not available anymore. I was like, really? It was literally yesterday. And Malcolm, this was in the newspaper days. Like I looked up the listing in the newspaper. So it's not like someone was on Zillow and like a bunch of people (laughs) dropped in. And again, as you may have read, Yonkers had intense housing segregation and had to desegregate housing in the 70s and 80s. So that was one experience. And then I experienced outright racism when I was in Fire Island, New York, Long Island. It's like a resort, kind of like Jersey Shore here. So I was out, I rented a house with some friends and it was very white. My friends were white and like the, the whole vibe was very white and I was pretty uncomfortable. But I met this guy, this white guy who was nice. We were just hanging out and we were at some like bar or club or something people were hanging out he introduced me to his friends and family he was with they were pretty nice to me and then he comes back and he tells me that they said i can't believe that you would like they were calling me the n-word they were like laughing at him because he was with me they couldn't believe that he had looked up with a black girl and i was just like wow and he was telling me this and he seemed shocked and i was just like Holy crap. Actually, no, that was the second time someone called me an N-word and never to my face, right? I was dating again. I was a teenager and I met this guy. I met his mom. I was like 17. I met his mom. He was Latino. He was pretty brown too, but they were Argentinian. His mother was very light, white Argentinian. And again, when I met her, very nice, really sweet. When I walked out the door with my dad, She says to him, I can't believe you would bring an N-word home. And again, he was shocked. So like in a lot of cases, it's these white or white adjacent people acting shocked that the white people in their lives are intensely racist, which at the time I was young, like I said, I was like a teenager at the time and I hadn't experienced a lot of direct racism. So it really woke me up because I was like, even over the years, it made me realize that like that thing I experienced, I was quote unquote fortunate enough to experience late in life. Now I understand people have been experiencing it since they were very little and very consistently, probably much more than me. And so that just really gave me a lot of perspective. Something that shifted about my perspective as a result of these interviews is that I had the assumption that if a multiracial person was dating or involved with someone who was overtly racist against them, they'd automatically leave the relationship. But it turns out that's not always the case. Yeah, I think that was true with Jordan Davis. Today, he identifies as mixed or multiracial and is an advocate for acceptance and inclusion. But Jordan is a former white supremacist. While involved in neo-Nazi circles, he had a serious relationship with a white woman who referred to him as the N-word. I developed a relationship with a white girl who was very racist during that time. She also even played some kind of role into influencing me to hating my black side even more. Tell me about that. (laughs) Oh, well, very toxic, very volatile. Even with her, 
I would still tell her what I am, but she just did not understand that. And I'll be honest, whenever she became very angry, that hard R would come out. Wow. Yes. That's why I've told people before is that just because you guys may be in an interracial relationship, that's not going to insulate you from racist or bigoted sentiments that you may be harboring. I found that so heartbreaking. At the same time, it's important to acknowledge that Jordan was on the receiving end of racism while also perpetrating racism against others. He was indoctrinated into a system of white supremacy that hurt him and other people, including people he dated. Jordan told me about his dating experiences after he and the woman who openly called him the N-word broke up, while he was still indoctrinated in his former racist views. But even also during that time, I will admit that I did go out on dates and I went out on some dates with a couple of black women. Even during that time, I did embark upon some great dates with black women and I don't regret it. Wait, but you said great dates. But what did you say when they asked you what you were up to or like who you voted for or whatever? Like, tell me about how that was. I told them. I told one of them what was going on, and I told her about books like The Third Reich and Mein Kampf, and she was fascinated by it. But then eventually she was getting creeped out by it to where she didn't really want to continue with it anymore, which is understandable. Jordan said that as he's experienced his own journey to greater self-embrace, he's noticed he's become more attracted to those who share his multiracial identity and experiences. Although he told me he's not limiting himself or his options. At this point, I love our women. Even right now, I'm actually speaking to a woman who looks like us. She knows our story and it feels great. I feel no second thoughts. I feel nothing. And speaking about, I guess, when it comes to dating or preferences, even just two years ago, I saw women who looked like me and you, and I thought they were very beautiful. And I was starting to see myself probably involved or even marrying one of those. And then that was leading me up to calling my friend in 2021 that, hey, I don't think that this white power stuff is going to last for very long because I actually love our women. They look beautiful here and I can see myself with them. So that in itself was really helping me expand on my horizon and not limit my options. Because if anything, limiting your options is just really what's going to keep you single. We're not weighing in on any desirability debate, which can feel like exotification. But there is value in expanding our horizons and not limiting our options, especially because romantic relationships can be rewarding, showing us the potential for change, acceptance, and understanding. We also don't want to overstate or overpromise the value of relationships because people are complicated, which makes romantic relationships complicated. And attributing too much personal growth to a partner can get tricky. What's also worth considering is how many people don't open themselves up to the possibility of these growing experiences based on who they date. Research over many decades has shown that a lot of people still draw hard lines with who they date or don't based on race, and online dating apps have only reinforced these divisions. Stereotypes, misconceptions, and cultural barriers all get in the way of interracial dating. I spoke with Evan Fong-Jeroff, who is Asian and white, about his experiences of dating. 
Our conversations span the gamut from sharing about stereotypes and desirability to discussing the concept of dating outside of a person's race and how this may or may not pertain to biracial, multiracial people or how it might pertain to us differently. I did, probably didn't think much about my racial makeup until later on in high school and then in college more. I think, yeah, and so, or in some ways it's like dating out of your race when you're biracial is, is all the time, generally. <laughs> it's hard not to do it unless you find someone who's the exact same makeup. I wouldn't think, yeah, as much about that when dating folks just in general. I do think, and I wonder about this, I mean, I think there's this like stereotype of, of Asian men that they're not attractive. And I mean, there's a lot of so much racism around that concept that, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that played into account for me or, or I felt a little bit of that, or, I mean, I do think if I were, you know, I didn't see, I haven't seriously dated an Asian woman, but well, me not being, being white and Asian felt like I was, and again, I have no real proof of this. It felt yeah. like I was, I was slightly more desirable because I was a mix of Asian and mm -hmm. white than if I were purely Asian with these Asian stereotypes, even for Asian women or for other women viewing me. So I felt like maybe I, I could juggle that a little bit easier because I wasn't in a certain box. Or I think maybe I felt more freedom or I haven't felt defined in terms of who I could date based on my race, which I know a lot of friends have felt that way, that they're one race and they feel like they have to marry someone of that race as well. I've had yeah, a number of conversations where someone said, oh, I'm dating this, this person, but there's no way I could marry them because they're not of the same culture. So in some ways, I do think that maybe being biracial, that experience gives you more flexibility because you're like, well, I don't really fit here. I don't really fit there. Or if my mom's really pushing this, my dad's not pushing it the same way. I don't have it from mm -hmm. both angles. You don't have such a strong push to date or marry someone of a particular background or culture because they didn't do it. So it's also like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you can't <laughs> don't be so hypocritical to say now I, you have to dictate who I can love when clearly you didn't take that advice. I asked Evan how he perceives the pressures people experience to date individuals of certain races or cultures. I think it's sad. I have seen examples where it can be harder for sure, because there can be such stark cultural differences. But I think that sucks. I think it's really unfortunate, unless that's something that, that is very important to them. I believe in their, their right to choose their, their partner, but I think that's what I believe in is the individual's right to choose their partner, not the societal pressure or the parental pressure that, that comes with it. But I feel fortunate not to having been in a situation where I've had to make a decision of a, my partner or my family. And I think that's a very real trade-off at times. And I think that's really unfair, put someone in that position. It is sad how pervasive racism can be and how stereotypes and assumptions shape who we feel we can or can't date. And even how friends or family might have certain expectations of who a person should date or judgments about their choices. Similar to Evan, I've always felt a greater sense of flexibility in terms of who I can date and zero pushback from friends or family. I like to think they'd be the same if I were monoracial, but I can't say because I'm pretty sure that my mom faced some pushback when she was dating my dad and possibly even my sister's dad that I never did and never will. 
Another thing that Evan said, which I can relate to and relates back to my Amsterdam anecdote at the beginning of the episode is confronting the feeling that some people hold that being mixed has inherent attraction or desirability. I always find it funny to hear that now because as a kid, I internalized a lot of racism and assumed that I was an ugly duckling because I was mixed. What about you, Darylise? Have you experienced anything similar? My experience was different, but also problematic in that I felt objectified and sexualized quite a lot for much of my life, which seems to fit with a lot of experiences of not just multiracial women, but women of color in general. In fact, there's been a lot of research about how the media portrays black and brown women as sex objects. I'm sorry you experienced that, and that must have been hard. And I never realized how pervasive that experience is. But after reading the research, I started to reflect on portrayals of Halle Berry, Mariah Carey, Beyonce, and so many others, and to think about how sexualized and exotified portrayals of multiracial girls and women have been. And you've never experienced exotification? Certainly not to that degree, but I have at times felt like I was exotified or bumped up against racism in the dating arena. Even some of my seemingly flattering experiences were cringeworthy, which was something Kat Dyson echoed. Kat is also black and white biracial. I had an ex-boyfriend that had said that he always wanted to be with a black girl. That didn't last long. Or some random guy at a casino, actually, sitting two seats down from my husband, asking just random questions, but then whispering in my ear. I guess he had asked what I was. And whispering in my ear like all the later ones are the best ones and just making my skin crawl yeah dating you gotta make sure that they're good people (laughs) it's interesting that the examples that you gave were those of exotification and i found so much of that in my research and in my own personal experience this lecherous fascination with multiraciality or biracial identity for me it's not really flattering at that point god no They want to take that little step towards blackness and and control or God knows what. Who knows? Just stay away from them. Kat eventually married a white man whom she describes as wonderfully supportive. They met in college and she told me that although their relationship has been solid, that doesn't mean that they haven't had some awkward experiences on the basis of race. I do remember a time that I went out to eat with my husband and my friend who's white and her white daughter. And I guess every time that her daughter, who was like, I think three or four at the time, wanted something, the waitress would look at my husband and ask if it was okay if she had chicken fingers or something like that. And I'm like, well, what am I? I'm like, I'm sitting next to him over here. So little things like that, yes, I can understand that that happens. But again, assuming identities, why would you? Just ask. Darylise and I aren't trying to paint a bleak picture or to suggest that the only racialized interactions that occur within or surrounding multiracial people in relationships are negative. In fact, like so many other things having to do with elements of identity, it would seem that experiences span the spectrum from positive to neutral to negative. But as more interracial relationships happen, there are positive signs, like the fact that individuals who acknowledge the presence of institutionalized racism report higher relationship quality within their interracial relationships than those who deny it. That's according to a study in the Journal of Personality and Psychology. And one thing that bears mentioning again is how experiences really do differ on the basis of all of the identities we hold. 
On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To learn more, visit resolvephilly.org PJC. Jewel Love is the founder of Black Executive Men, a corporate coaching firm focused on empowering Black leaders. Jewel and Darylise spoke about how gender and race often interact to create differing experiences for people, even with the same racial identities. And his perspective was powerful considering he has a twin sister and could speak to growing up with someone of the same racial background and parenting who has navigated her biraciality very differently. I think it's this whole thing, and I talked about it earlier, is being viewed as a threat to white women, white people, maybe other ethnicities as well, just a certain stigma about being a black man and being dangerous to others and then carrying that. And there's an element that ends up being even internalized as well, whether it's one's experience or not. So that was very much has been very much internalized for me in my experience. Sure, other biracial men and black men having that kind of commonality. Yeah, I'd say I think you're absolutely spot on with that level of connection amongst men that are mixed with black and just identify as black. I'd say there's that connection. I think the other thing, there's a dynamic for mixed race women and black women that can be competitive and there can be a bit of an underlying war for attention going on, especially, yeah, I'll just leave it at that, from men and who gets chosen, who doesn't, who's beautiful, who's not. So as opposed to there being this, we're all in it together scenario, you actually have this dividing thing where many times, not all the time, but many times you get biracial and mixed women that are going to get attention and more attention than their darker skinned friends are going to get who's getting approached at the mall or at school or maybe even opportunities as a possibility as well. And so there's more of a dividing factor, mm-hmm. which leads to an animosity for stories I've heard and what I've seen, as opposed to black men and mixed race men. I've heard stories that back in the day, it was more about light skinned men are like the best. Mm-hmm. They get the most girls or women or whatever. Today, it's not quite like that. You get dark skinned brothers that are cleaning up and light skinned brothers that are doing fantastically well as well. And I know I'm talking about dating and being single and stuff like that, but it's a significant part of the growing up experience. It's who's being chosen, who's being asked out, who's getting attention, who's not. And that stuff is real. It affects people. It does affect people in overt ways and in ways we don't even recognize. But something that I think can be more obvious is how who we develop relationships with can amplify certain elements of our experience and expose us to different things. We spoke about this last episode when talking about interracial relationships, but even dating someone who holds one of the same races as you can bring different experiences forward on the basis of ethnicity and culture, but also aspects of yourself and your experiences that you emphasize. 
For many people, as we get older and explore new dimensions of life and ourselves, it's easier to have more awareness about racial dynamics and relationships. But it can be a challenge when a person is first exploring themselves and their attractions to navigate racial dynamics when dating. And sometimes people make broad generalizations on the basis of a few or maybe even a single experience. Especially at formative ages, rejections in dating can leave a lasting impact. Sometimes it's only in retrospect that we recognize how early life misadventures and dating have left scars. I've only ever dated black guys, so it's been easy because when I was younger, I'll tell you this, like this was my first time realizing I was really young. I was in elementary and my mom sent me to these summer camps because she'd send my sister to a summer camp for kids with disabilities and I couldn't go. She wanted me to feel included, so she would send me to a camp and this camp was predominantly white. I actually cried about this in class the, the other day because they did a sharing circle and we talked about our first experiences with race, really understanding it. And still today as an adult, I still remember how this made me feel. That was Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, and a co-producer and host of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. I must have been maybe second or third grade. And at the time, Mary, Kate, and Ashley were a really big thing for kids in the white community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at this camp... I remember there was this little boy and his name was Elliot. I still remember to this day. I don't know why. He was like the first little white kid I saw, little white boy that I saw. And I just had a crush on him because he was like the popular guy at camp. And I remember there was one night we were playing hide and seek through this open space with trees around us and stuff. And there was this little girl that I remember her looking exactly like the Olsen twins and dressed like them, hair, everything like them. And... I had told a girl in my cabin that I had a crush on Elliot and I watched her run up and tell him and he looked back at me and was just like, ew. (laughs) For the rest of the night playing hide and go seek, he was chasing around this little girl, like clearly flirting like kids did. And there could have been a, a thousand reasons why he said ew, but in my mind, it was clearly because I looked different and it was my first time having my, and To be real with you, I carried that, like, I still remember the kid's name. I carried that with me through life in terms of thinking that, like, white men would never be attracted to me. I relate to that so much. I made sweeping judgments about my own desirability based on early feelings of rejection that I thought involved race. Sometimes race was mentioned, and other times it wasn't, but I internalized my racial differences globally as negatives in dating. But also, these experiences led to discoveries about who I felt most comfortable around. It sounds like Azaria went through a similar evolution. So I just also wasn't that attracted to most of them. But yeah, I've only ever dated Black men. But actually now, which is like how, in my mind, God works, I have a beautiful partner who is actually, his dad is Puerto Rican and Ecuadorian. So his dad is biracial. And then his mom is Black. And so... My partner is multiracial, yet he was mainly, I would say his mom's side of the family is massive. She has a blended family and they're that massive family that that same mass goes to every event, every function. So he was really, really, he was brought up around his dad's side of the family too, but he was more than anything, his mom's side of the family had 
influenced who he is. So he identifies as black, but he also understands that look wise, he looks Latino. And he also has a very Latino sounding name. And then he also doesn't speak Spanish. So he is really an interesting person in that sense. What was interesting, I will say this, is I met my partner on a dating app, which I always said I would never do, but I was like, it's COVID and I'm in a new city. So what the heck? And when I first saw him, his picture, I told my roommate, we had matched or something. But I was like, yeah, I mean, he's like super handsome, but he's not black. He looks Latino. And I remember being like, I don't know, like I've only ever dated black men. And that's what I feel comfortable with because I need, I always felt like I can't be in a relationship where like my love for my people is not understood and who can understand it better than a black man. Right. But one thing in me was just, just go. But more than anything, it was that need to be understood. So I was so pleasantly surprised to get to the table and realize like, regardless of what he looked like, he understood the music references I made. He understood my passion for social justice and empowering black folks because he identifies as black. He has a love for his black family and understands why I go so hard. And that was just like, oh, okay, this is perfect. It has influenced like dating and self-confidence because when I was in college and I was in predominantly white spaces and I really only had white males to look at, even if I contemplated dating one of them, I always like would stop myself because I don't look like what they go for. So that's what I told myself at least. That's not to say that having racial resonance and commonality isn't also an important factor that has influenced Azaria's choice of partner, only that her experience with Elliot continues to impact her perspective of white men's perspectives about her. Still, Azaria told me that dating men of color has really helped her to feel safe and understood and to feel like she doesn't have to explain herself to those who might not understand her life, her background, or how important her Black identity is to her. I needed that personally, and I also knew that I could not be in a relationship with someone who, outside of just understanding my personal experiences, who had an abundance of ignorance around race. I just could not. And I don't, I'm not saying that all white people have that, because I know plenty of white people who go out of their way to educate themselves, which is amazing. But I did not want to have to do the mental gymnastics of educating my partner constantly on things. And I was even, again, when I first externally saw my partner and I thought that he looked full Latino, like I would never have expected that he was Black. I was a little nervous about that because there has been some historical tension between different Latino communities and the Black community. And so I was nervous about that too. Are you going to understand? So I was like he's fine. So I'm gonna go on this date. (laughs) But I don't know. And then sure enough, like I get to the table and I was like, oh my God, thank the Lord. It can be really great to date someone who is multiracial or someone with an underrepresented identity who might be able to relate to those lived experiences. At the same time, dating someone of a different race, someone monoracial, and someone who may have navigated their life with more racial or skin privilege can also lead to expanded understandings, a broader perspective, and some really beautiful cross-cultural, cross-racial exposure. That's something that came up in my conversation with Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, a psychologist and children's book author. My husband is a white man. And I think before we were together, I don't speak for him, but it's like us being together. It's like his eyes have been really open to different things. And he has a totally different experience, understanding of the whole world at this point and Mm -hmm. people, how they get treated. And I will talk a lot about it and how it makes me feel. 
One thing I loved about my conversation with Kimberly was when she shared about parenting and how she and her husband have sought to expose their kids to all aspects of themselves and their cultures. I just did this poster for my daughter. She was a star of the week in preschool <sighs> and it, adorable. But I put Puerto Rican flag, a star of David. I put like all these different pieces. My husband is also German and he's Irish. And so I'm like, oh gosh, he's poor. I'm just like, you guys are multicultural. Like you are <laughs> multicultural children. I think the poor four-year-old has like lists of different, because like, I, obviously to me, it's so important and it's so powerful. And I want her to know we were going to Puerto Rico. I want them to know you guys are Puerto Rican. This is where your family was from. And really leaning into that, which they did. And they got hats and necklaces and ankle bracelets, you know, really leaning into it. But I think that the way I try to uncomplicate it is just by talking about it in a real everyday life, matter of fact way. We celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Hanukkah, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Like we, we kind of just do it all. We know that Passover, half our family celebrates and we celebrate Easter and we just try to bring it all in. I think that they probably in some ways think that everybody celebrates all of those things. <laughs> They'll be like, what do you mean you don't celebrate Hanukkah? Teaching them that when we went to Puerto Rico, I was like, this is where grandpa's family is from. This is where grandpa was born here. And so really just trying to put it in everyday life is the way that I try to uncomplicate it by having just lots of conversations that are real, basic, age appropriate, just normalized. Having these conversations and this exposure matters, especially early on in life. And at the same time, it's important for these conversations to remain age appropriate. Rachel Goh, who identifies as biracial or mixed and hosts the Mixed Movement podcast, shared about how she and her children haven't spoken about race nearly as much as they've spoken about culture and celebrations of self and identity. I have twins that just turned six and my oldest is eight. So they're pretty young. How are you raising them in relation to race? Yeah. What are the kinds of conversations that you're having? We haven't had many conversations about race lately, which is surprising to me. <laughs> It hasn't fully come up, but a few months ago, I think it was St. Patrick's Day. Oh, your grandpa, my adopted dad, is Irish. Let's celebrate. St. Patrick's Day is one of my favorite holidays. I'm not going to lie. I grew up in a very Irish community. Yeah. I mean, the city shuts down, dies the Chicago River Green. It's a holiday to me. But I've I've mentioned, oh, we are also part German. Oh, we are part Nigerian. But we haven't had a full-on conversation. And I will be completely transparent here. My family dynamics, their family dynamics, it's a lot. It is a lot. And I don't want to overwhelm them entirely about having, quote unquote, the conversation about why both sets of grandparents on mommy's side are white. Why do we have brown skin? Like, well, I feel like this conversation is going to be had very soon and I won't do anything to sugarcoat or hide anything mm -hmm. because that doesn't serve anybody. And I feel like we are in a position, in a situation, in a time where we are, we can make our own tradition and embrace our own culture. There was one instance, it didn't sit entirely well with me. And I felt like my old defenses were coming up where my oldest came home from school probably about six months ago. And she said, my teacher said that I have beautiful brown skin. And I heard that and I was like, what'd you say? <laughs> what do you mean? And she said, and she said that I have beautiful brown skin, just like my mama. And I'm like, you know, what's interesting that calmed me down because I had that 
oh, people would say, you're such pretty brown skin. And I would just sit there isolated by myself, not really knowing what to do with it. But I took a lot of comfort in my daughter. She's not going to have that experience of feeling isolated and alone like I did. She's not going to have to describe or explain to people how she's related to her own family like I did. So put that weight down now. And we are very close knit, my children and I. We have a family handshake. I'm not joking. It's almost ridiculous. Yeah, that's so cute. <laughs> they argue over who sits next to me at the dinner table. So I feel like we can handle just about anything and we're going to do right by it. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black Talk Media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events. And become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Sarah Gaither is both a parent and a researcher at Duke University. She studied biracial identity formation and development and the psychological ramifications of negative racial interactions and how constructive conversations about race and identity lead to increased psychological safety. As an expert in biracial identity formation, other parents often come to her asking how they can do right by their kids when it comes to supporting them in embracing their racial identities. When we bring parents and families into our lab, for example, for studies, they always want to know, like, what do I do to make my kid not racist? Or what do I do to make my kid love themselves, right? And my answer is always the same. You expose them to people that are different. Let them find their own path. Let them learn about how diverse and wonderful our world is. And they're going to find their way. And I think the most resonating conversations I tend to have with parents, because parents always feel blank. They feel like they're never doing enough. They don't have enough time to look up X, Y, and Z reminding parents that you don't know what you don't know and that's okay. But if you realize you don't know something, don't just stop there, right? That's kind of step one. And now step two is like, Hey, I don't know about X. Let me go find some YouTube videos on how to braid my child's hair, for example. So there are ways you can empower yourself. And I think once I kind of convince parents that they too can empower themselves on behalf of their kids, they have this whole newfound energy and excitement for also connecting with their kids too, or learning about their grandparent or whatever the case may be. But I think oftentimes we get stuck, especially when it's about race, ethnicity, culture, diversity, because we're too afraid of doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. And the other piece of advice I always give people is you're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to teach them the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And that's just part of being human. And everyone's multiracial experience is going to be different too. So just because you read something on a blog with one multiracial family doesn't mean it's necessarily going to apply to yours. I think that's the other thing I see parents do a lot of, they think it's just going to magically work, but you're a different family than that family. And so reminding them to just humanize themselves a little bit, I think goes a really long way. Dear Elise, I love the reminder that parents are people too, and how important it is for them to humanize themselves and to be willing to learn alongside their children. I found it really helpful as well to think about the diversity within families and of how so much of how we react to and relate to these moments really has to happen on a specific case-by-case basis. 
Yeah. And at the same time, Malcolm, I found it really inspiring to talk with those who are not yet parents about the hypothetical scenarios they might encounter, and then to talk with people who are actually parenting as well. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness of how those we've interviewed are raising their actual children, but even thinking about raising their hypothetical children. And it was interesting to consider what a different experience it might be for a multiracial, multi-ethnic child being raised by a multiracial parent, whereas my own experiences, like so many, was being raised by monoracial ones. It's fascinating to know that the experience of being raised by mixed-race parents is becoming more common. Pew's Multiracial in America survey found roughly 12.5% of adults with a mixed racial background had a significant other who is two or more races, a figure that's much higher than the 2% of monoracial adults who reported being with a multiracial partner. This suggests that biracial adults are significantly more likely to have a romantic partner who is also multiracial. But enough about the data. Let's share some of the hypothetical parenting tips that those we interviewed shared with us. Your sister Tyla said that even though parenting isn't something she's thought about too deeply, she's reflected on what the experience might be like and is trying to remain open-minded about what the future will bring. I do want to be a mom, but I'm also like, I'm a few years away from that and I need to enjoy my youth. Yeah, I really haven't thought about it. I mean, I think it starts with representation and books and dolls and things like that and not being afraid to talk about race. I hope that my kids will have their own questions and that they will feel so safe that they'll come to me with whatever question they have and we'll talk about it. Do you feel like based on who you end up with in terms of race, it'll impact how your kids identify or how much of your biracial identity you bring into that setting? I think it probably will, just in the sense that I'm pretty light-skinned and who I marry will dictate how my kids look therefore will dictate how society sees them. So I think it has to. And I hope that they'll know that I'm really proud of being biracial. And like, I'm really strong in my identity, no matter what they look like or how they identify. That's EBD. On the other hand, Azaria has thought a lot about parenting and how her racial identity and her partner's racial identity will influence their prospective children. I asked my partner a little bit ago, We both identify as Black, but let's be real. We're going to create some babies, and they're probably not going to look any ounce of Black. And I was like, how are we going to identify them? What are we going to call them? And what are they going to be? The question was, what are they going to be? And his response was, loved. They're going to be loved. And I thought that was so beautiful because I think that does come first. But then the more be real, we operate in society's concept of race. And so they're going to need to be something. (laughs) But I think that he has more confidence there than me. And I think that's something that I would probably lean heavily on him for in terms of when that day comes and we have to start having those conversations with our kids about their identity. I would love to see how they just naturally show up and want to identify. But also it's going to be interesting because we're certainly about to be raising our kids around Black culture. That is our family. Yeah, those kids will be really interesting and they'll have to have a lot of confidence. (laughs) I hope that I did a lot of the hard work for them so that they don't have to. Like I did a lot of the insecurity and sweating and nervousness and all of that around how to identify. And they'll still naturally just have to go through the nerves of choosing how you identify as an individual. But I just want them to feel so, so rooted in the confidence that we instill in them. I appreciate the distinction between racial identity and cultural identity. 
But also, we don't ultimately know who the next generation will be or what they'll face because we are talking about conjecture rather than reality. Yeah, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris and I spoke shortly after the birth of his and his partner's first child. And at that point, we were having an off-the-record meet-and-greet conversation about race and social justice. And when David and I spoke again more recently, he shared that even in the span of a few months, things had changed. Here's what David told me when I referenced something that he'd said about parenting just a few months earlier. I don't remember like the exact conversation that we were having because I think within the first year of having a kid, things are constantly changing and I imagine they will continue to constantly change right right now. This is actually the first week of daycare where our kid is like away at daycare for most of the day. And so that's brought its own set of challenges. And so like those things are constantly evolving. I think it's just important not to be too rigid with with habits, right? Like as much as I want to have boundaries for myself for work and other things that I want to do in the world, right? I also need to be flexible to the needs of my family, my wife, my my kid, and continue having conversations about what's working, what's not, and how can we meet each other's needs? What is the support that we can ask for from our family members, our friends, our community to help us continue to be able to at least survive, if not thrive through all of this? I mean, that looks like, hey, can you come watch our kid, like even during nap time when they're asleep, just so like we feel comfortable like going out or hey, can you just take our kid? Like, can you provide meals so we don't have to do, can you do laundry? Like those kinds of things that allow spaciousness and time to continue to tend to the other aspects of ourself is, is ongoing conversations and important things that we're still figuring out how to do as we're still young, very young parents. The recognition of the need for spaciousness and time to tend to oneself is essential because it's often what children see modeled that they replicate and what they see around them that shapes how they perceive, filter, and interpret the world. It's astounding how early these things begin. For instance, I'm thinking of Sarah's work with infants. Early on in her research career, she designed a study geared towards examining how biracial babies react to and relate to race as compared with their monoracial infant counterparts. The eye tracking study, and so obviously little infants can't talk, right? They can't fill out surveys or tell you what they're feeling. And so eye tracking is this cool technology that uses infrared sensors that basically record where you look when you show babies different pictures or images. So in that study, we recruited biracial Asian white infants and then compared them to monoracial white and monoracial Asian infants, all within the general Beverly Hills, Los Angeles area. And we showed them faces that were both Asian and white to see if they could tell them apart. So there's a standard effect in psychology known as the other race effect. So if you think all white people look the same or all black people look the same, that's usually because you haven't had a ton of exposure to people from those racial groups. So it makes them more difficult to tell apart. We actually showed with eye tracking that these biracial babies by just three months of life, because they were all growing up in two parent households, they had so much exposure to two faces that looked racially different from each other that they had faster waves of distinguishing these faces compared to the monoracial baby. So it's not to say they're superheroes forever. It's a mini boost because eventually everyone catches up and can distinguish faces in the same ways based on their own respective exposures. But it was a really cool finding to show that just in three months of life, that exposure really does shape the way we see at least these stereotypical categories of race based on who it is we see in our everyday existence. Who we see shapes how we see. Which is why, in speaking with parents and in our research for this season, we kept coming back to how much representation matters. 
We discuss more about the importance of representation in episode six on art and culture. We won't reiterate all of that here, but let's just say it is important, very important. And it's something those we interview noted both as being improved from when they were growing up and as something they should be paying attention to as parents or that other parents and multiracial people ought to be paying attention to. Exactly. Let's continue with my conversation with Sarah. She's the mother of twins, and I just mentioned to her that I was born in 1983. I was born in 84, so we're almost twins okay. ourselves. Growing up, I didn't have mixed race dolls as an option. I had, again, black dolls, white dolls. I had no biracial dolls growing up, but those do exist now. There are doll companies where you can choose your kid's skin tone and design all these things to make it personally relevant to your child. And I love these advances that we've had and these representative toys that kids have to see themselves. My own twins, as you said, they turned two in a couple of weeks. And it's so easy for me to go onto Amazon and actually find dolls that look racially ambiguous or even black dolls. I can have them delivered to my house in a day, right? That didn't exist. There was no internet when we grew up. So there's just very different access points, but I still think the same effort parents need to use now. Unless you put in the effort, you put in the intentions to make sure you have the right types of toys or representation in your toys or even the events that you take your kids to. You have to put an effort to find those cultural events to expose your kids to. I'm not sure that's necessarily the way that we talk about things still now, right? Everyone is obsessed with working, needing to make money. COVID has shifted all kinds of expectations in lots of ways the last couple of years, but finding the time and effort to do that, I think is still something that I don't see has changed a ton over the years. What are some of the things that you're putting time and effort into when it comes to exposing your own kids to cultural differences and embracing their own lineage and ancestry? Yeah. So I mean, all my family lives in California, so that makes it hard living in North Carolina, but we have family Zooms once a week to make sure they're always seeing their family. We made a, a family photo book actually, which is just a really fun thing for anyone, regardless of what your race is, especially if you live far away from your family, each page has a different close-up photo of a family member's face with their name so they can learn those associations, know where they come from. They're still pretty pre-verbal being young two-year-olds. So this will all change once they get older, but at least for young kids, I make sure the toys aren't just all the same. I make sure the books have lots of different types of people in it that look different. Even Asian families, right, are in the books that we have. I want them to have this exposure. What most research argues is the more exposure you have to diversity, the more flexibly your kids are going to think, the more inclusive they're going to be, and the less scared they're going to be if they see someone they've never seen before. It's all an exposure question. I'm also pretty careful in choosing like what types of events we go to to make sure we're going to events for different types of people so they can see real people too, <laughs> not just cartoon people in books and things of that sort. Music is another really good way to get them exposed to different sounding words and languages and accents. I think that's something that parents overlook that even if you don't live somewhere that's diverse, you do have access to music. Spotify membership can give you lots of things. Our kids don't do screen time yet, but if you are doing screen time, again, being cognizant of what shows you're showing your kids is another way of giving them representation. Big Sesame Street fan in general. It's one of the most researched child shows in history. And that existed when we grew up. It's still here now, although HBO owns it now, but there's still good new diversity content on there too. So that's kind of my approach, at least right now, while they're little, as they get older, we'll have more explicit conversations about lots of things, protests, things of that sort, once they have the kind of ability to process that. I loved Sarah's intentionality and also her recognition of the fact that every family structure is different and that those parenting multiracial children or children of any racial demographic really ought to be thinking about reflecting those societal differences back to their children. 
She also spoke about how there's a lack of research when it comes to multiracial people within various family structures, and that their experiences may or may not parallel those being raised in two-parent households and or with both biological parents in their lives. The single parent context is something I get asked increasingly about. The other thing that often comes up is how does this compare to transracially adopted kids and what are the similarities and differences between those kind of family dynamics? I was raised by a single mother until I was 11, but my mom made an effort to expose me to BIPOC representation in literature, and I was surrounded by Black, white, and biracial people. So I do feel like I was able to experience that identity flexibility, but not everyone has that, and these are important considerations. Speaking of family structures, parenting, and the importance of intentionality when raising children who are multiracial and or children of color, Malcolm, can you talk a bit about your interview with Rachel Lauren? Absolutely. Rachel and I talked a lot about how both her personal life and professional life connect with multiracial issues. Rachel identifies as Black and works in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is a foster parent. Back in episode four, she told a bone-chilling story about how when she was in school, she had a white teacher have her and the rest of her class do an in-class exercise in which they pretended to be enslaved, and he pretended to be an enslaver, and how damaging that was. And she shared that she felt her parents didn't prepare her for those racial moments. Let's contrast that with how she parents her own children. It definitely starts at home, because what I can tell you is if you're not teaching your children at home, especially preparing them for the experiences that they might encounter, it doesn't matter what happens at school. The story that I told you gives you just kind of that understanding in and of itself. Not that my parents ever hid me from certain things, but because I was in an environment with individuals that were just like me, I was protected in some way. And I don't think I was prepared to look for what I needed to. So I'm really conscious of having conversations with my children, asking them what it is they're learning and how they're learning it, correcting the stories that I know are not right. And it's my responsibility to do that. I also consider myself to be an activist and an advocate in society. And I'll tell you a story of my youngest. She likes to color. I bought them crayons. For school, they were all required to have just regular Crayola crayon boxes. And I bought them the the new additions in addition to the regular one, which is like the skin tones, so that they could color people and feel like they saw themselves in the crayon box. I taught them that. And I ended up picking them up from their after school program. And one of the teachers came to me and said, my daughter was protesting with the crayons that they had at the after school program and breaking a couple of them and saying no more racism. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, well, we definitely have to have a conversation about appropriate ways to voice how you feel with identity and not damaging property. But at the same time, she (laughs) felt like she wasn't seen in the after school crayons and she understood what it was that she was trying to at least convey and say. And so we had to have a conversation about that. But it's interesting, the things that children are able to soak up at a young age, you'd be surprised. And so I always tell people, there's never a too young age to start talking about it. Because the reality is, if you don't, someone else might, and it'll either be at them or to them. I love that story. Was that story with the crayons? Was that a situation where when you heard it internally, you were proud of her? In a way I was, I was like, okay, she's not going to get in trouble for this. We're going to have a conversation about it because I want her to understand how to voice things and when it's appropriate to take it to that level of activism. But it's also like she, she watches her mother. So it's like, what could, I can't be a hypocrite. Yeah. There was a part of me that was proud. I literally taught her that at the beginning of school, when I was buying school supplies before they even went, and this was like recent, this was like the end of the year. So it stuck with her. 
some things change from one generation to the next, yet there continues to be and probably always will be baggage when it comes to race and racism and the structures that support inequity. The more we know about these systems, the more we can work to build families of choice that are embracing of those that have been historically marginalized. I fostered a total of seven children throughout the journey and adopted three of those seven. I have two daughters and a son who are all Black identifying. My daughters are actually Afro-Latina, so it worked out that way. I, When I became licensed, and let me just first make the disclaimer that all children deserve safe homes and they all deserve love and race has no role in that, like they all do. But in the state of Texas specifically, I was told that there were more Black and brown children left in the system. Not that there were more that entered, that there were more that were left. So there's this misconception that there are more of us that are are in the system when in actuality, it's just that there are more of us that don't get adopted. And so when I got licensed, I actually asked for only Black and brown children for that reason. And so I did, I, I fostered Black and brown children and ended up adopting three for just to help that. Because I felt like it was my responsibility to do that as a Black woman. And I intend to get the 23andMe test for my kids because I want them to know biologically as much as they can. I know what the system told me. I know what their birth certificates say, but I want to make sure that they're able to get some of those questions answered because you're right. Identity is a very big struggle for individuals that are adopted because it's this idea of where did I come from and why don't I understand that? Early life lessons stick with us, and they've stuck with those we interviewed, which is why they told us they're bringing a level of intentionality into their parenting and into their interactions with future generations in the hopes of creating a world that is more embracing of the multiplicity of identities that we humans hold. And because the quality of our lives is determined by the quality of our relationships, the hope is that the relationships we choose and cultivate bring us to a place where we can show up authentically and be all of who we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our final episode and please like, rate, and review the podcast. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. And thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Covenda Media, and to Paul Kondo, our outstanding editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible, and Jean Son, their Director of Collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.